Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. We have a wonderful, wonderful guest today. Her name is Jenny Q. And if this podcast story doesn't touch your heart, then I don't know what will. Um, We are going to be speaking to her about a book that is going to be released June 1st, 2018. And the book is called Held Together. It's a true story about love's victory over coma, amputation, and drug addiction. And I want to tell you a little bit about Jenny before I bring her on the show. She was born in Southern California to Palestinian immigrants. Her love of herbs began in her teens while on the road following the Grateful Dead. After exploring many heart homes, she set her roots in Joshua Tree, California, where she opened Grateful Desert, the local apothecary. Joyously sharing her life with her tight-knit desert community, Jenny lives with her beloveds, Yazzie, her daughter, and Mishkin Wobbler, her wife. And held together, I would say, probably brought me through a ton of emotions while I was reading it. Um, It was really a beautiful story. I wasn't really expecting it to be as impactful as it was. And I think anybody that goes out to purchase this book is probably going to feel some of the same stuff that I felt. And in her book, one of her friends uh, wrote a little something that I really think summarizes a story. And he says, her teaching is our teaching and her lesson, our awakening. And I don't think that that could be more true after reading this book. So Jenny, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. So, wow. I'm a little overwhelmed from reading the story. Uh, I'm still processing a lot of emotions. I've highlighted many different pages of different things that people um, spoke about and wrote with their letters throughout this book. And it's, I guess, gosh, where do we even begin? I'd like you to maybe um, let our listeners know how you actually put held together together because it's not your typical book and it's 432 pages. And I looked at it, I was like, Oh my gosh, but it was a quick read. And I I don't know if I'm considered to be a quick reader or not, but I, when I picked it up, I didn't put it down for about three and a half hours later. Mm. So um, you are a quick reader. (laughs) Okay. All right. It was, uh, it was captivating. So Mm. can you explain because I think it would be helpful as I'm going through and want to mention some of the different pages and what people wrote, what I'm referring to and how you brought this book together. Well, um, you know, the funny thing is the reason that the book even, um, you know, kind of, uh, ended up in the form that it is, is because when I was considering writing a book, I was really sick still. I was just out of the hospital. Um, I was still in and out of the hospital, still getting sick. Um, and, um, I really did want to put my story out there because, you know, while it might be about my medical event, it really is much more deeply about this community that held me together. Um, but the idea of writing the book seemed completely overwhelming. So, um, uh, a group of my close, uh, friends and my wife and I came up with the idea of collaborating with my community who actually was there to hold, to hold me, um, 
And so I reached out um, and asked, I put out a call for submission and asked people to write how they were affected by the story or what their perspective was about the story. And so I got a whole bunch of submissions in and then I took each one and I cut them up into little bits and pieces and then wove them throughout my own writing. So everybody gave me just one document and then I kind of ripped them up and, and created one big cloth, if you will, from, uh, from those with my own writing. Yeah. I wanted it to amazing. It's so cool. I wanted, I wanted it to read almost like a novel. Yeah, it, it really did. It was amazing how all of these different um, stories came together from everybody's different perspective and how they were going through this whole process with you. And it just really turned into such a magnificent uh, story. And um, I absolutely loved it. So can you tell our listeners just kind of how this all unfolded with going into the hospital for what seemed to be a pretty simple routine uh, medical procedure and then you know, a few, few days, I think it might've been a couple of weeks later, here you are in like the battle for your life. Yeah. Um, I did go in for a very minor procedure. Actually, after the event, I had maybe 10 specialists, surgeons tell me that they had never heard of a complication from this, um, from this procedure. It was maybe a couple centimeters, uh, of a, um, incision. And, um, uh, so, you know, I, it was, of course, an outpatient outpatient procedure, and I came home um, the night of the procedure and uh, woke up in the middle of the night very ill. And my uh, then brand-new girlfriend, you know, was worried and called the doctor in the morning, and the doctor said it was probably fine, and I was probably sick because of the pain meds. And But it was 48 hours after I left the outpatient um uh, office that I was in the ER. So it was very quick. Um, the incision, uh, became infected and then went septic or into my bloodstream. And so when I ended up in the hospital 48 hours later, I was in shock. I had barely had a blood pressure. I was 55 over 20 and could have died right there. Um, and then not long later hours, perhaps I was in a coma. Yeah. And that coma lasted for seven days, eight days, was it? Six days. Six days. Six days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that in my memory, uh, the coma might have been for six days, but I couldn't actually move and wasn't really in the world for months. <laughs> so um, even though, you know, people were, I was able to respond to people only with my eyes for a really long time. Um, it's still kind of, I wasn't really in my body for, I wasn't really present for a very long time. Right. And then coming out of the coma, there were so many other, you know, medical complications, which eventually led to the amputation of, um, both of your legs, um, your fingers as well. Um, and then really having to basically learn everything all over again. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I found touching on so many different levels, um, one, reading some of the stories of your community and how they were feeling the shock of hearing, uh, you know, you were in the hospital, there was a little bit of, um, 
I don't want to say secrecy, but, you know, there was that theme throughout mm-hmm. the book that your family tried very hard to really not put everything out there and keep probably their own sacred space for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounded to me like there was a lot of angst amongst, amongst your community and friends, like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and having had the personal experience of um, some friends go through medical things and also being very attuned to Reiki energy and healing energy and things of that sort, I also felt what some of your friends were going through when they were praying, doing distance Reiki, um, sending you energy, um, creating altars for you, um, and just like holding on to that hope. Um, and, And then I also kind of was really impacted as well by um, one of the first stories that I highlighted was look like your friend Eric and it was entitled singing songs and Mm. just this longing and this description of him bringing his guitar to the hospital but really not able to get in and then just finding this patch of grass and just hoping that these notes and these songs would get to you I mean I really went through a variety of emotions from crying to feeling hope to feeling fear and scared like oh my god is she gonna make it obviously I knew you did because I'm talking to you now (laughs) um but Mm -hmm. one of the things that really touched me was it well it really made me think about consciousness and healing and One of my teachers is Tom Campbell, who our audience is very familiar with. We have him in our documentary uh, trilogy series. But one of the things that he told me when I was working with him on a couple of other people when we were doing some distance healing was he said that, you know, April, you can always change. There is a probable future outcome that can be changed. And if there's enough people involved that there is that probability that the outcome could change. And as I'm reading this whole book and I am listening to the stories of how these people were praying for you, um, holding healing circles, um, sending you distance Reiki, I know that our consciousness system is really rooting for us to succeed and not hurt us. Mm -hmm. And I felt that the power and the multitude of how many people would be impacted had you died I don't think would have been beneficial for the overall kind of consciousness system to kind of feel hope or believe in healing. So I felt that collective consciousness that was holding you and holding that space for you. And they were warriors. They were not giving up. Um, You know, I wondered as I was reading it, I wondered, wow, did this collective consciousness really change the outcome of maybe what the other end of the fate could have been? I don't know. Do Do you think about that at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, um, my uh, doctors also thought about that because um, for the first week, uh, the doctors kept telling my family, well, please prepare yourself. Jenny will not survive tonight. They kept saying that over and over to my family um, because when people go through DIC and in nursing school, we study this too, you you die. You know, that's basically what the outcome you know, was that people expect because your organs all shut down and you bleed out. Um, and so, um, you know, they, I just kept, I kept surviving. I kept surviving. And later, maybe a couple of months later, a doctor came and told my family and Michigan that the, you know, uh, medicine was not keeping me alive. At some point in that first month, they said, this, this is not medicine. We don't, you know, essentially this is the prayers that are coming in because she should have passed by now. And, um, 
Uh, and I, I can't tell you how many times people come up to me, even now, because I own a store in town. And so I have customers that perhaps hadn't been through town for a couple of years. They heard what happened. And, you know, I still hear, oh, Jenny, I was putting so much energy towards you. We were sending you so much healing. So many people, um, so many letters and crystals and, you know, um, music and cards and pictures were coming through the ICU. There was a, a huge outpouring. And what uh, Michigan told me is that when she would meditate next to my bed, she would feel this incredible pulsing light, uh, almost like a web of all of this light coming towards me and her and my family and all connecting us um, and holding me. So, so beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And th there's like almost stories inside the stories in, in your book, because, you know, it's not just a story about you surviving this, but, you know, there's other stories about family and what the family goes through. There's also, um, you know, the battle of you being in love with a woman and your wife going through that struggle with the acceptance and the relationship with your mom. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and do you want it? Would you like to speak about any of that as well? Because it seems like everyone was had like their own battle that they were also yeah. facing as you were facing your battle as well. Yes, I I love how my my oldest brother John put it. He said, um, uh, because my mom has five children. My parents are immigrants. Uh, they're you know essentially refugees from Palestine, and they're very traditional people. Um, and what my brother said was this medical calamity brought out the best and the worst in my mom, because my mom has dedicated her entire life to her children. And my mom didn't leave that hospital room. I mean, after months, they finally convinced her to go home for a night. Um, and, um, she was just so dedicated and she's a traditional Arab woman and, um, just had, <laughs> such a difficult time just allowing her, you know, herself to be generous at all with her energy with my then girlfriend, now wife in the room. And Mishkin, um, though she was my new girlfriend, she all of a sudden was, you know, holding my businesses here in Joshua Tree, my household, my daughter, who was in trauma, as you can imagine. And so she was really feeling like, well, this is, you know, I am in this. And while most of my family accepted her, uh, my mom really struggled. Um, and again, she was traumatized as well and just couldn't even expend any energy to be polite or nice or nice. And so, and Mishkin was also traumatized. So she, you know, it was kind of explosive in, in that realm. So I guess while I was still in and out of the coma at one point, my mom was on one side of me and Mishkin on the other. And while I was still away, I grabbed each of their hands and put them together over my body to try to have them hold hands and try to make them see each other. And um, so that's even in my other place, I was really right. trying to bridge them. And, uh, and my mom, like, is such a complex person, a deep, loving, devoted mom, and also just, uh, not accepting my life in, in, you know, in the way that it is. 
So, right. And I know that, you know, throughout the book too, like towards the end, um, you could tell from your writing that there was like this hesitancy and almost like this holy shit moment of, am I really going to put this book out there (laughs) and, (laughs) and be completely vulnerable and actually tell everyone kind of everything that's going on, because that's That's also not typical of the culture that you grew up in as well. Not at all. Not at all. And actually, I spoke with my little brother yesterday, and he had heard an interview um, that I had done. And he was just like, well, I hope mom doesn't hear the interview. And I was like, oh, no, what did I say? And he said, well, you were talking about being gay and just, you know, uh, you know, you they said your name and you're talking about mom and dad. It's like, I know, Jimmy, this is going to be difficult. But um, I also feel that it's important. There are so many people in my position. Um, I have a group of um, women, queer Arab women, um, a network and boy, uh, we, we struggle, um, in that way. And I feel like if they can read about another person like them, it will support them. So, yeah. And also, you know, in that, like you said, as the reader, you know, seeing that your mom had a very difficult time embracing, uh, Michigan and then, but also seeing this beautiful love that this mother was still giving you, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. like you said, she was there every single day. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just interesting as a reader to read and, you know, I'm sure all the readers are going to be like, come on, just love, please, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, but, but you can also see that your mother is so tender and loving and, you know, one of your biggest supporters. That's right. And, and it's been actually hard for my daughter, but also a beautiful lesson for her that the world is not black and white. Um, we are complex creatures and, you know, Tete, her grandmother might be, you know, uh, unaccepting of us. And that's hurtful to me and Michigan and her and Yazzie. Um, we love her and we don't, uh, uh, keep our love from her. We still visit her. Yazzie still spends time with her. And we just, um, it's a, it's a beautiful lesson because we all have our baggage. We all put out energy out there that may not be received well by other people, but yet we still see the beauty and the light and the love in our fellow humans. Yeah. And, and maybe, um, you know, for mothers out there too, uh, again, another story within your story was also, uh, your daughter and your daughter's journey through this and how the two of you and the way that you raised her, you know, was extremely close and, um, you know, the type of parenting was, what's the key, the attachment, attachment Uh parenting, Yep, Mm -hmm. where she was with you all the time, strap her on the back, right? You were taking Mm -hmm. her to the Grateful Dead concerts and and all of that fun stuff. But, um, but then, you know, to have a mother and daughter uh, with the attachment parenting, and then all of a sudden you get sick, and then she was not able to be with you uh, for quite a long period of time. And, you know, you were in and out, nobody knew if you were going to make it. Um, Wow. You know, what, what a trauma for, um, the both of you and how is she doing? She is a warrior. Talk about warrior. This little girl is my teacher. Um, it, it was, um, you know, like you said, we, I, I practiced attachment parenting. So she did everything with me, wherever I went, whatever I was doing, she was, you know, in the womb and on my sling to the sound of grinding herbs and, um, cooking and any, you know, and so we have a very close bond. Um, and, um, she hadn't ever spent more than a night away from me. 
And um, so when I went away, it was it was quite traumatizing. And we're all suffering from PTSD here in the household, all three of us. But Yazzie, um, I would say, suffered the most as a child. You know, um, uh, I can I can't fathom what she the fear the kind of fear that she felt. I was just dealing with the day-to-day as well as Mishkin. But Yazzie was here at home while Mishkin was at the hospital or with her dad. But um, And so she couldn't be right there with me. And even when she was, she was terrified. I, you know, had wounds everywhere. I was bandaged. I, it, it was, boy. But um, she has become even more of an empathic um person from this. She was always very much an empath, but at this point she is such a caregiver and um, strong and giving to the people around her. She notices, she notices when people aren't feeling well. And she, um, just as an example, I was in the, I was in my booth at this latest festival. I'm an herbalist at at our local Joshua Tree Music Festival. And this woman came in and she had uh, an injury. She had burned herself. And um, this woman, you know, this elder woman just started crying. She was in so much pain. And, um, you know, at first Yazzie was kind of hovering. And I wanted to say, Yasmin, this is not okay. You need to give us a little space. I'm trying to take care of this woman. And then immediately Yazzie just kind of wraps both arms around this woman and just holds her while she cries. It was really beautiful, actually. Yeah. Yeah. How sweet. Yeah. So there, so there was that whole like heart tugging piece as, you know, reading the story as well. Um, and then I wanted to share a little bit of the kind of healing stories that really touched me. Um, there were a few, one was really kind of funny, but the first one that I loved was, uh, your friend Elise Mm -hmm. and it was entitled visioned and held and wept. And, um, I remember hearing this from my teachers and also um, listening to Greg Braden talk about this. And basically when you are doing a healing to really look at the person as if the healing is already done, that they are already healed, that they are already perfect. And I loved that she had mentioned that, that when she was visioning you, she says, I visioned, envisioned, envisioned her in whole, balanced, beautiful health. Mm. And she would not allow like to see anything other than that. And I thought that was beautiful. She held the whole community. April, if I could only tell you how much she was such a solid ground for people here in Joshua Tree. So many people told me that Elise gave them hope because she would put out texts saying, today we're going to meditate on her blood flow. Today, we're going to meditate on her legs. And she was a lifeline for many people. And she was very, she is very fierce. She is a very fierce woman. And she would not accept anybody (laughs) in her presence that would take away any of that vision of me whole that uh, you're talking about. She was, yeah, she is a shaman. She is a strong uh, uh, local community healer. 
Yeah. And, and I think, you know, any healers reading your book or they don't even have to be healers, but anybody, I think really reading your book can take a piece away from the teachings of some of your friends in the way in which they held space for you. You know, so if a reader grabs hold of your book and they have somebody that might be going through chemotherapy for cancer, let's just use that as an example, that they could use that tool to just envision their loved one completely healthy as mm. if they are already healed. Um, and then to just use that within their meditation and their prayer. So I also see, um, held together as a teaching manual <laughs> in, in many ways as well. I, I had a nurse tell me that she came into my store and she is an ICU nurse and is on the sepsis team. And, um, she did say she wanted to use this book when it came out to her nurses actually to help, um, you know, because they have most of their patients are in a coma or unresponsive. And so to read what I actually went through could help them see uh, or understand the patients more, you know, because I did go through nursing school and you, you learn so much stuff, but as a patient, it's a completely different or deeper story. Right. Yes. And, um, another story that I love that made me giggle a little bit were, um, your two friends that came for a hospital visit, but their mantra before they came was, uh, Jenny's angels would get us as close to her as needed. And they just kind of kept saying that. And somehow they get into this hospital. They're like, end up, you know, approaching doors to the ICU. They're told you have to wait in the waiting room. All of a sudden these doors open. They went through like three different sets of doors. They just kind of kept looking at each other like Jenny's angels are going to get us as close to her as needed. And they just believed in that. And, um, I love that story. That was just so, um, sweet and funny. And, um, I don't know. I just love working with angelic energy and it also shows how things can just happen if they are meant to be, you know, that's in right. that sense. Yeah, that's that, right. That they, they are two women that believe fully and trust fully in the universal flow. And because of that, they are always writing it. <laughs> yes. And also a part of their story, again, another teaching moment and something that I know that I will probably use down the line, um, was a story that they remembered of a young boy who was kind of in a similar situation. And the father of the boy had wrote how he would invite friends and family to visit, to offer energy and for that energy, be, energy to be used freely for the purpose of the patient. Mm. So it was kind of like, here is this energy and take it as you need it. Um, it said, drink from this cup. And that was uh, the feeling of their prayer. So that's another thing that people can think about. You know, when you are visiting somebody in a hospital or somebody that is going through something um, pretty tough, um, it, it could be medically, it could be spiritually, but if you are surrounding them, I kind of looked at it as leaving an energetic imprint for the patient to be able to use. But if people set that intention before they leave, you know, what a beautiful space of energy to surround the individual that needs to heal. Mm -hmm. I think many people did that, whether they knew they were doing that or not, when they sat in meditation and, and held me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, I could go on and on and on mm -hmm. with all of these different um, pages that I, uh, that I, you know, bookmarked here, but I guess a lot of people, you know, probably also ask you, well, what was it like when you were in the coma and what, what did you experience? You know, did you have that experience of bliss and, um, mm -hmm. you know, is there anything that you could talk about, uh, in that state that you were in? Yes. Um, 
yes. <sighs> Speaking about it is uh, is difficult because it really is beyond words where I was and and where we all are in truth, always. Um, you know, uh, because you know I went through this experience that I'll speak of, but. Um, I have been brought back there many times now, uh, just sitting and holding a newborn. I was completely brought back to where I was. And sometimes when I'm in meditation, I'm completely brought back. Um, but when I did leave my body, I found myself in a completely present state. Um, and what I visioned was what I guess would be cosmos, um, really well, lots of juxtaposition, so dark and um, kind of silent, but at the same time, bright <laughs> and almost loud with kind of this singing, almost as though when you're in meditation and you're completely present, you feel this humming of your your cells, your vibration. It was like, it is like that. And I also remember these wispy, brilliantly colored clouds and also kind of these faces with the eyes shining as bright as the stars um, and faces of people. There's this one woman that comes to mind. And at the time we knew each other, but not that well. We've become closer since. Um, and there she was, and she's alive, and yet there she is in the cosmos next to me with these bright, brilliant eyes, and she's a very spiritual woman. Um, and the feeling that I get that it is is presence, and because it is presence, it is this joy, but it's beyond emotional joy. Um, so it's it's hard to describe. Uh, it's, um, and, but the good news is that when I did pop back in my body, because I did, because sitting there in that place, I then had, and there was nothing, it's not like it felt like, wow, this is amazing. There isn't the mind. There isn't this rolling dialogue that we have in our day-to-day -day lives. It's just, it just was and then appeared or was my grandmother on my mother's side, who is my teacher, was my teacher. And, um, and then there was this bookshelf that had things from my life on it. And when I looked up the bookshelf, at the top of the bookshelf was a book of my daughter's. And then immediately I snapped into my body. And, um, I was still in my body, I was still in a coma, but I was now kind of like aware of the hospital or my, my, my physical self, um, almost as though I were asleep. And so say you're resting and, and someone walks into the room, but you're too tired to open your eyes and acknowledge them, but you can feel them next to you. It was like that when, um, I came back into my body, um, so, um, but the, what I got to take from that experience, uh, funny enough, I mean, you might think that someone wanted to get back there, but really the gift was that whatever we do here on this planet 
is for our joy. And how do we want to live that way? How do we want to spend our time? Do we want to spend our time joyful? Do we want to spend our time stressed out or worried or depressed? Or we get to choose that. Well, we don't get to choose our situations. There are people starving. There are people in war. But in general, how we live, how we feel doesn't matter because when we get to that place, it's the same. It's not like there's this reward thing and some people are drinking nectar and others aren't, or it's just, we all are. And it, and so it kind of gave me this freedom of the stress. Well, okay, I can be stressed about the bills or whatever, but really it puts it all into perspective for us that uh, when we're all done, this is just a moment, these physical bodies, this is just a moment. And the moment at the same time, we're also in this realm of presence with the rest of, as you said, collectiveness, collective consciousness. Yeah. And um, later on in your book, you kind of threw these questions out there of wondering, will the lessons ever stop? And will it ever be easy just Mm. for one day? Mm. And so, you know, what would you say to people that kind of are feeling that same way in life where it just feels like, really, another lesson, another Mm. difficult thing to go through? Can I just get a break here? Um, Mm. You know, and anybody reading your story, I'm sure many people reading it will say, can look at your story and say, okay, my stuff isn't so bad. (laughs) Mm. Um, But, Mm. you know, we don't want to discount anybody's experience because it's their experience and what they're going through. But how do you really encourage, because there's a teaching moment here of resilience Mm. to continue, even though the lessons are coming and might be extremely hard and harder the next time? Right. Well, people have said that to me often. Oh, I don't want to tell you my problems because they seem, you know, you're, you're going through so much. And I really shut that down quickly when I came out of the hospital because I would say to my friends, hey, don't cut me out of your life. That's not fair. Then you're punishing me for having gone through, um, you know, what I went through. I want to be here for you. That's my joy is to be present for you, your stuff as well. Um But I, of course, so I I explained all this beauty and still I'm in the world and still I deal with, you know, bitchiness or anxiety or all of that stuff. And what I get to bring and what we all get to bring is perspective because we can feel all of these emotions and also kind of separate the witness um, of ourselves and notice that what we're feeling is not necessarily what we are. And uh, when we take our wisdom self away a little bit, just a little bit, then we can chuckle at the, you know, dark humor of a, of a really hard situation. Um, or, you know, for example, and when I wrote that chapter, I was going through a very hard time with one of my closest friends. And actually, we were separating as friends. And she was a very good friend to me. Uh, and every single day, um, being together kind of friend. And it was very painful. And yet I could take myself out of it and look at it from a, from a, from a different place. I I don't want to say higher place, but just, you know, as if my, my wisdom place were sitting on my shoulder, um, uh, and, and love myself through the pain, hold myself through the pain, hold her through the pain. Um, and, and yet still feel the pain, right? So not taking anything away from our human experience, but uh, not, not getting lost in, in it. 
Right. And, and you, there's a really one liner, there's lots of one liners in here that I've highlighted, but, uh, you had said life can be as traumatic or as humorous as we choose. Mm-hmm. Pretty mm-hmm. powerful. Yeah. Um, and another question that I had for you, uh, one of the, the other things that came to mind is a true lesson in really trying to find some detachment from the physical body. You know, I hear a lot along the spiritual path that they say we're more than our physical body, um, you know, that we come into the body to have these experiences, but we are not of the body. And then when you, you know, go through what you have gone through with, you know, physical amputations and parts of your body being taken away, uh, can you talk about that at all? And do you feel that that, um, that kind of that saying that we are not our body settles in even deeper for you of an understanding. That's interesting that you, that you say that. Um, I'm also very much a, I don't want to say a hedonist. I say that in jest. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know, um, a witch or somebody who's very much, um, enjoys my physicality enjoys the sensual nature of our earthly experience and honor it as um, holy, quite honestly, because we get to be here. We get to love this place. And so, you know, I, I pick and choose what I want from all the kind of, you know, religions or, or beliefs around me and, um, and, and, and leave behind what I don't want. That's actually just, a, <laughs> I think a gift that I took or, or a side effect of being in a very traditional Arab family, Palestinian family in California, Southern California. So I, I got to pick and choose what I was taking from the culture around me and what I was taking from my home and my, my culture. Um, and I guess I've just always done that with my spiritual belief system. Um, and so that idea, that perspective that, you know, this, um, you know, this is, uh, this body is, is just, um, is a, is a learning place. Um, I, I didn't really, I didn't really take that in as a younger woman because I wanted to be absolutely present and, and be, um, finding our earthly experience wholly. Um, and, um, like I was saying, uh, you know, being present when we leave our body, um, this is really complicated to put into words, but, and I, I think I was, uh, you know, when I was saying that it, it kind of lessened the stress of what we have to do here on this planet is that we get to fully embody these, these physical manifestations, these flesh bodies, we get to fully be here and be present in them. And then we get to shed them. And, um, so as present as we are, when we leave our bodies, we get to be fully present in our bodies as well, even though we don't have to be immersed in the emotions of the body. I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I think that you are. It's, it's always been this weird thing in my head too, because it's like when you go into meditation or if you want to experience out of body experiences or mm-hmm. remote viewing, you have an understanding that your spirit, but yet I also think if, well, if we're going to return back there, why not mm-hmm. play in the body mm-hmm. and have fun because we're, That's he, right. we came here for a reason, right? That's right. I very much agree with you there, April. 
struggle. And it could be just the nature that I am kind of addicted to joy and, and beauty and, and beautiful feelings. Um, and which is, you know, why I choose to be so joyous here. People ask me all the time, gosh, you're so happy. Look at you. You're in pain, this, that, and the other. And it's like, well, I love to be happy. I love to, you know, um, enjoy what is around me as much as possible. And I do want to say as well that my body is very different. I am, you know, I was a very physical woman. I was running five days a week. I, um, took pride in the strength of my body, not took pride, but enjoyed it. Um, and, um, and so it's quite different for me now because I, I sometimes refer to myself as, you know, a 95 year old woman kind of shuffling around, uh, but I do, I have been really, um, falling in love with my new body as well. I, I look like a creature, you know, and I'm kind of enjoying it. My, my whole skin is patched up because I lost a lot of my skin. Um, so I kind of look like the moon, you know, it's all cratered and, um, you know, my fingerless hand, is just like this little paw. I mean, I'm really starting to kind of get into this new weird, uh, physical definition of myself as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think any woman that has struggled with her body image at all, you also mentioned in your book, um, throughout that you struggled with that before all of this, you know, so there is that acceptance of learning to love the body in which we inhabit. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that one of the um, messages that you also wanted to bring forth in this book is, also kind of being an advocate for people who do have some sort of a disability, or maybe they don't look like a full bodied person. You gave an example in your book when you were in a store, I believe you were in your wheelchair at the time and you were with your wife and you were asking the sales associate questions, but she wouldn't look at you and answer you. She would uh, give the answers to your wife. And I remember that being a very tough moment for you, very emotional. Um, And I know that, you know, in part of now having this experience of what it, what it's like, you also want to be a voice for people who, you know, we don't all look the same, right? Mm -hmm. So if we don't have all hands, feet, toes, if our skin looks different, um, you know, to give that message of love and coming back to loving yourself is also important for this journey. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, definitely being an advocate for people who look different and also that we all feel that way in a way, whether or not we look different on the outside, most of us go around feeling other or disconnect and that my experience was extreme. And yet it is really just an extreme of the experience that most of us are having and how to find our self love and love for those around us in any situation. And what advice would you give to people, let's say, that do come into your store that have no idea what your story is? They're not a part of your community. You know, many times people are taught when they're younger, you know, if you're a child and you're noticing somebody's different or in a wheelchair, you know, children tend to stare, right? And what's Mm -hmm. the typical thing that most parents would say? Stop it. Don't stare. (laughs) You know, don't don't look. Um, You know, and I think sometimes people just don't even know what to do. It's like, well, if if I look too long, does does 
that that's make right. that person uncomfortable? Am I supposed to, should I ask questions of, oh, what mm. happened? Or do I just act as if Jenny looks completely normal and I'm going to mm -hmm. just keep talking to her and just avoid the whole possibility of that I'm looking at a woman that, you know, um, you know, has the stump on her hand and is wearing prosthetic prosthetics and I'm just going to just treat her normally. I mean, what type of advice do you give to people who really don't know how to communicate with people with disabilities? I think that um, a couple of months ago, I might have given you um, a very sure answer. And that is that um, I usually tell parents not to apologize to me when their kids are running up and asking me questions, because I tell them it really is refreshing, actually, when um, when people ask me, not just children, but children are just, they're, they're bold and, and they're curious and they're honest. And I love that. I love it when people ask me. I actually post pictures of my stumps, which most amputees do not do, um, because I want people to get to stare in the privacy of their own home so that when they see disabled people, then it's not the first time. You can't help but uh, be, people are curious. I'm curious. Um, that being said, I actually uh, uh, hurried up to this uh, double amputee that I met just a couple of months ago, and I, I just I wanted to cry and hug them because I feel like I'm, I'm a family of every amputee now, and um, and any disabled person. And this person wasn't as excited as I am when people come up to me, and they were saying that that it was to them they felt it was rude when people say when people ask what what happened to them. And, um, and I was really shocked actually, because I love it when people ask, because we are usually, I mean, I just assume that people are curious. So when they ask, I, I you know, I go into it and, and I connect with people, but I guess it really is a personality thing. This person has been an amputee for uh, 20 years. And so, um, and, and they were young, I think they were 18 when it happened. So perhaps they just have a different perspective, but for me, um, I welcome it. And, um, you know, of course I have my days. So some days, you know, being stared at is, is a little, uh, I have a little less patience, but in general, I think, um, you know, uh, just for any disabled person, you know, looking over and, and looking down and looking up and, and acknowledging them, just like you would acknowledge somebody else and not necessarily, I mean, people, I feel it when people are shocked and, and it's not a negative emotion that people are ha having. It's a surprise because I am an anomaly. And, um, and so to maybe, you know, just acknowledge the, you know, that you're, oh, wow. And smile, um, is, is just fine. And I have to tell you so many people when I'm walking by, just say, what a warrior or, you know, bless you. Or, you know, I get a lot of kind of that response as well. And, and that, that's sweet. Yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for your vulnerability, for putting your story out there, for sharing your community with me and with all of us and anybody that reads this. Um, and again, for our listeners, the book is called Hell Together. And um, where can they find it? Um, I know that you are releasing it. You're going to be releasing it very soon in June. Where That's will right. it be sold? Well, um, it is going to be in many venues. You can go to my website, heldtogetherbook.com. Um, and um, I, 
It will be on also on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and in my store at Grateful Desert and on my website, gratefuldesert.com. And we are going to be, if anybody is uh, out here in the desert in Joshua Tree, having a big uh, uh, release party on June 9th. And my wife wrote a record um, at the same time that I was in the hospital, wrote many songs, spells to keep me alive. Um, beautiful, beautiful songs. And she happened to be finishing at exactly the same time I was finishing my book. So we took that as a strong sign that they were supposed to be a collaborative event. So we are actually uh, creating a performance piece uh, with my writings and community members will be speaking um, their writings and myself and um, weaving the, the Michigan songs into the book reading performance. And um, and her record is, held, is called... Um, uh, trust and the high wire. And, um, that will also be released, um, on, on June 1st. And I believe that would be on michiganwarbler.com. Yes. Her, her website, michiganwarbler.com, but they really do go hand in hand because her rec her, her record is, a, is the story of us meeting in my disability. And my book is weaving around her <laughs> as a musician and my partner. So it really is lovely. Yeah, that sounds together. beautiful. Well, good mm -hmm. luck with that. I don't think you're going to need it. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of people there. And um, and if people want to stop by your shop, um, the website is gratefuldesert.com. And where are you located exactly, the physical store? The physical store is in downtown Joshua Tree, which probably has about 10 stores. <laughs> but we're right on the main drag, um, snuggled in between the Joshua Tree Health Foods and the Natural Sisters Cafe Wonderful. Yeah. All right, Jenny. Well, it was a pleasure uh, just meeting you virtually here. Yes. And, um, you know, I I think one of the things that I, the next thing that I would love to read is all of the medical people that worked with you and to see mm. like a second book mm. in their stories and, mm. you know, having you put that together. Because I think that mm. uh, sometimes, the you know, there's there's a little bit of a disconnect um, overall in the larger picture between the medical community and, and stories like this. And you tend to have doctors who are brave and will come out and um, talk a little bit more about the mystery of this and mm -hmm. how you really can't explain it with mm -hmm. science and um, and the medical training that they had. And I think we need more of that. Oh, yeah. These um, the, uh, one of my surgeons wanted to be filmed for an interview that we did. Um, he couldn't make it. But two of my ICU nurses did come and were interviewed. I mean, I have so much support from the medical community that that's that saved me that kept me here. So awesome. yes, that is the truth. I just well, wanted to thank you, April, for holding yes. space the way that you do with your podcast and holding me as uh, gently and um, you know solidly as, as as you did in this experience in this interview. I appreciate it. Oh. Thanks. You're welcome. And, you know, let the nurses know, you know, if anyone in your medical community would like to um, come on the show just to also give their perspective, we, mm. we would love to hear from them. Um, I think it would be a nice follow up. And I bet our listeners would love that as well. I will reach out to them. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I, thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you so much. 
If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time. Thank you.